All right. Here we are with chapter number six in our series. What happened in India? And if you've been following the series, great, wonderful. You're up to scratch on the plot, on the narrative. And to just give a quick recap, basically, this series is some personal stories of mine from my travels in India and studying meditation at the Osho International Meditation Resort. And so far, there's been quite a lot that's happened. I've had sort of run-ins with different people and different girls. <laughs> and I've done Mystic Rose. And I've done the course Living with Joy. And I attended the Monsoon Festival and was there for the monsoon season. So... Lots of stories in those previous chapters, if you want to go back and listen to those. Very interesting lessons were learnt <laughs> in those events for my life. So, we got up to the point just about where I was going to start work at the meditation centre. So This is a program, and... This is significant because I was actually moving into the resort to be completely submerged in the <laughs> in the resort, in the Buddha field, as they say. And the story goes <laughs> The story goes that I actually turned up a day early, which was a common occurrence. I often got the dates wrong and the times wrong for certain things in certain places wrong. And <laughs> I turned up early and they were like, well, you start tomorrow, didn't you know the date? But it was okay. They were able to shuffle me in and I started and got involved in the program. And the program is, what is the program? Well, the standard workers' meditation program is 6 a.m. dynamic meditation 7.30 morning class, 9 o'clock work until 4 o'clock, 4.15 kundalini meditation, evening meeting, and then that's it. So basically from 6 a.m. till about 8 o'clock at night, you're going non-stop. And it's seven days a week with no breaks, no days off. I mean, you get a lunch break in the middle of the day which I think is only half an hour. Maybe it's an hour. Actually, yeah, I'm pretty sure it's an hour lunch break. And, of course, on top of all that, you could do, like, the evening meditation, right? So that would take you to 10.30. And there were people there that were on this program and had been for months. And they were actually doing the full, full day every day. So 6 a.m., Dynamic, which is already just like starting with a bang. And then I remember this one lady, she would do silent sitting in the morning. Then 9 till 4, kundalini, evening meeting, evening meditation. So massive day. And it's not just, 
it's not just a massive day in how much stuff you do. It's also massive in the variety of things that you do, right? Even in just dynamic meditation, you've got five different things that you do, right? And then when you're working, you're also not only just in the place that you're working, but you're also going off and doing other things. And there were also programs and groups that would go on as a part of that sort of process or that residency, you could call it, living in program, I guess you call it, something like that. (laughs) And basically, I followed that. I didn't so much do the kundalini. Normally, I would go to the basho and say, well, if I'm not shaking it off, I'll wash it off. And I went to the pool and just relaxed. And yeah, the place where I was placed, the, the spot where I was put to work was the office where I was the receptionist for a certain kind of office. And <laughs> I remember being in that office and on my first day, it was my job to go through the website and learn about all the courses that were available so that if someone was to come in and inquire, I could tell them about it. And I remember sitting on the computer and logging onto the website, which I'd had a bit of a look at before, and I'd been around, so I knew some of the programs, a lot of the programs. But I scrolled down, and I reached the very bottom of the page, and there was one that said, The Path of Love. And with all my recent experiences of Mystic Rose and this girl that I was with, I, I saw that like path of love and I was just like, whoa, there is a whole course dedicated to love. And I was just, I just, I just felt this in me. I thought, if I could do that, that would just be, that would be incredible. If there was some way I could do it. And I realized, well, it only happens once a year and it's not going to happen for like another couple of months or more. So I don't even know if I'll be here then. And I don't even know how long I'm going to stay. I mean, I'm at least going to stay for two months because I've just started this workers meditation program. And I just remember thinking like, whoa, love, love, this experience of love had opened me up and I wanted more. I wanted to really go into that and explore that and understand love. And of course, There were also funny personality clashes, right? When you're working, you meet all sorts of people. And up until now, I've been telling this story sort of like, well, everyone there is some sort of angel or something, right? They're these perfect human beings. And that's not entirely the case. Whenever human beings meet, there's going to be a variety and there's going to be unconsciousness. There's going to be aggression and projection and all the rest of it. And there are going to be some people that you just don't like. Like, I just don't like you. And some people get angry at you. Sometimes you get angry at others. But with workers' meditation, you're actually working with that. You're actually learning about that. You're actually being brought into contact with other people in multiple situations with the specific purpose of understanding, well, how do I navigate that? And they feed you these techniques that you can learn and use to actually work with that and develop that. So, for example, one of the methods we we did was that 
you would say, okay, everyone sits down in a group and we all have our own piece of paper. And what we're going to do is going, we're going to make an artwork, but you're going to have to pass your artwork along in a few minutes. So, of course, I sat down and I started doing my drawing and I was setting it up like, okay, how do I, how do I set it up so that it's absolutely clear to the next person how to continue the pattern, <laughs> right? So I did that. Bell goes off, passed it along, and then the next artwork came along, and then I added my bit, and then it went around the circle. And of course, every moment I was like, uh, what are you doing? What is going on? Ah, that's not right. No, it has to happen like this. And by the time my artwork got back to me at the very end, it was like <laughs> unrecognizable. And I was thinking, ah, oh, what have you done? You've ruined it sort of thing. But of course, of course, I realized, no, you don't say, ah, oh, what, what have I done? What have you done? You've ruined it. You don't say that. I mean, you have that, you have that instinct, but you don't really, you know that you can't actually have that expectation. So that little exercise then played over into, well, someone's doing a job and someone else has to learn it and you've started something and someone else has to finish it and all the rest of it. And then further still, you're doing dynamic meditation. So there are times in dynamic meditation where you just go schizo. You just get angry. You just go mental. You go off your rocket for no reason. And when you're doing work as meditation, there are times when someone will trigger that in you or a situation will trigger that. And then you can go, okay, hang on a second. I'm doing what I was doing in dynamic meditation by choice back then. And now I'm doing it in real time. Like this is my actual life. And it's like, well, I chose to do it in the morning meditation and now it's a trigger so I can actually still choose. This is behavior that I can choose. So it's a very real sort of lesson that's brought to your face, which is how are you responding to situations? What is your behavior? How is it that you can change your behavior and all the rest of it? So that's a little bit about workers' meditation, or at least the start of it. And <laughs> the other thing that was brewing around this time was, well, there's actually two things that were brewing. One of them was, there was this girl that I liked. And the backstory to that is, there was this girl that I liked, or I was sort of just chasing girls and not really getting anywhere with it. And... You know, one girl in particular, I was sort of, you know, really going after. And the lesson I learned there is that a girl is not going to stop your advances on her, even if she has no intentions of doing anything with you or sort of going anywhere with the relationship, right? She can just sit there and watch you just try and try and try until... And, and, and in some cases, I'm sure, enjoy it, right? Like, look at this guy. He's sucking up to me so much sort of thing. And, of course, that can go too far, right? Like, people need to learn to draw their boundaries. And I learned that lesson the hard way, right? A girl is not necessarily going to tell you her boundaries. But 
I did figure out that actually she has a boyfriend. <laughs> so it was this sort of shock moment where the boyfriend walked in and it was like, who are you? Oh, I'm her boyfriend. And the the thing that made it even more funny was that I thought that guy was gay for me. <laughs> I was walking around thinking like, this guy's gay for me and I really don't like him. He just needs to get away from me. I don't like him at all. So to have that sort of shock of the guy come in and say, well, you obviously have no idea what's going on here was <laughs> a very, a very, uh, a blatant lesson of how ignorant I was of all the relationships of the people around me. So that sort of thing happened in a lot of different ways as I was there, right? It's, it's relationships on steroids. It's interacting with other people on steroids. You're all in on each other and you're all sensitive and you've all got these motives, right? So the sort of that was sort of a backstory to what was brewing. I'm coming to it. Stick with me. That didn't work out with that girl. And then this other girl came along and we were sort of talking a little bit. We didn't really know if it was going anywhere. We had some great conversations, you know, what I felt were some really good conversations. But I was also sort of like, you know, just because we have a good conversation doesn't mean it's going anywhere. Just because she's opening up to you and sharing personal things doesn't mean she likes you or anything like that. So that was sort of brewing. And then another thing was that was brewing was, are you going to become a sannyasin? Are you going to take take sannyas, as they say it? And some people were like, occasionally giving these comments like, oh, you've been here a while. Are you going to take sannyas? And other people were like, you know, don't pressure new people. Don't pressure people to become sannyasins. It's up to them. They don't, they have, they can, they cannot. It's entirely up to them. And I was sort of looking around some other people and what they'd done with the process. And I was learning about what Osho had said with sannyas. And I was sort of, I was sort of on the fence, right? It was sort of like, eh, you know, I'm thinking about it maybe. And I'm talking to my friend who's actually starting to help me with the process and come up with names, right? She's got this list of names and seeing, well, what about this one? What about this one? Does this one work? And yeah, so those two things were brewing. It was like this girl that I liked and are you going to be, are you going to be a sannyasin? And when those two things were brewing and I was sort of unsure about it, I got this phone call, right, from the in, internal desk phone. I had a phone in my office and they said, hey, Andrew, you've got to come to the front desk. We need to sort out your visa. And I thought, this, this was like a couple of days after I'd started living in. And I thought, my visa, why is there a problem with my visa? I've only been here a couple of months. And if it's a, it's a year-long visa... So I go up to the front office and they say, you need to update your visa because you've got a 90-day turnaround. And I said, well, what's that? And as it turns out, yes, I did have a year-long visa, but they have a cause in it 
which is called the 90-day turnaround, which means you have to go out and come back in. And they call it a turnaround because many of the people who were staying at the resort would just just go out for a day or two and then come back. They'd do the turnaround. And they were like, you've overstayed this 90 days by one day or one and a half days or something. And then they were like, okay, you've got to go and talk to security. You've got to talk to the head security about this because we can't accept you. We have to kick you out. We can have the bureaucracies actually coming after us for this. So I'm like, damn. And I start stressing out and I go to the head office, head head sort of guy, you know, big shot guy. And he's talking to me. He's like, you've overstayed your visa. This is serious, mate. This is This is a big problem. And I said, well well, what are the consequences? What's the worst case scenario? And he said, worst case scenario, they give you a fine, they hold you for a week, and you're banned from India for up to five years. And he's quite serious about this. And I'm like, whoa, okay. So all of a sudden, I'm facing not being able to come to India for five years, right? And I just think, damn, this this whole thing has changed. My whole day has changed. And I said, well, what should I do? And he said, you should make a run for it. You should go for it right now and hope that you get through the gate, hope that they let you through on this 91 days. And it was like, okay, what's the next flight out of here? And that afternoon, I was packing my bags to go to Dubai on a one day or one and a half day turnaround and another realization I had at this time with all this going down was like three months I've been I've been here for three months hang on a second I've only been here for three months and yet all this stuff has happened it feels like I have been here for for like two years considering all the stuff that's happened to me. You know, I've fallen in love. I did Mystic Rose. I've met hundreds of people. I've been in this place. I was sick and then I got better and then I was sick and then I was in that city and then I was staying there. It's just like, wow. And I realized at that time that this place is life on steroids. It's it's living ramped up to volume 11 sort of thing. And with all that in mind, I was sort of freaking out and thinking, oh, I'm going to have to pay a fine. They might lock me up for a week and maybe this is the last time I'll ever be here, right? So I was really sort of gloomy about it. And I did also feel quite a bit of seriousness like oh this is my last chance to be here how can I leave such a place I'm not ready to leave such a place I still have a lot more work to do I felt and yeah the two things that sort of popped when sorry I've just noticed a bit of fluff let me get this right the two things that popped when I had this sudden trip to Dubai was That, well, this girl, obviously I like her and I have to tell her. And taking sannyas, obviously I have to take sannyas. It's so obvious to me what this place means to me, right? I'd been there 
for three months, which meant that I had no, no outside reference as to what I had learnt on the inside and how that would translate into the rest of my life. And this trip to Dubai, this sort of sudden hit with the visa problem was like, okay, you need to make a decision on these things. And as it turned out, well, the girl actually also liked me. (laughs) And so she became my girlfriend, which was amazing. But I had to, of course, head off to Dubai and it was like, well, we couldn't, we couldn't follow that through. We couldn't even get to know each other at all. So I got on the plane. I remained grounded. And it was absolutely instantaneously clear to me how grounded and clear I was. And I remember standing at the gate, last person in line, white guy, and like handing over my visa. And the guy is like looking through it. And then he's looking at the dates and then like counting on his fingers like this. And I'm not saying anything and I'm looking at the stamp, having just watched everyone else, you know, open the book, stamp it, off you go. Open the book, stamp it, off you go. And I'm just like, please just open the book, stamp it, off you go. I need to get through this gate. If I get out, I'll be all right. And he sort of stopped and I'm like, okay, it did occur to me, should I bribe him? But I mean, I could have possibly bribed him, but I did also realize that bribing someone doesn't necessarily solve your issue because if you bribe one person at one gate, then you get to the next gate and you have to bribe them or you get to the next gate and then you have to do pay the fine or something or you get held up in some other way. So I decided against the bribing, even though I was aware of that. And in the end... Well, he said, look, you can't go through. You've overstayed your visa by like one and a half days. And then he took me back and I had to then meet with one guy who then took me to another guy who then took me to an office that was full of 10 other guys. And each time they're saying certain things you have to do and then there's going to be a fine. And I'm like, okay, well, I'll pay the fine, right? So whatever it is. And then I ended up with the head lady, right? The boss of the boss. And she was like, you're going to have to pay a fine for this. And it took ages to get the paperwork ready and to get it signed off. And it was something like something like $500 Australian. So not a, not a cheap fine, not a cheap ticket out of there. Not to mention the flight and the accommodation for the turnaround. So I went through with that. And I did it by the books and I was able to get through without them holding me or cancelling my visa. And the reason I was able to do that, I believe, was because I was grounded, because I was clear, because I was just able to do it peacefully, calmly and with clarity. So that I owe to all the spiritual practice that I'd been going through. (laughs) And I got the flight. I turned up at the hotel and it was 50 degrees outside, right? (laughs) So hot in Dubai. It was just scorching hot. And it wasn't scorching hot like India, which is humid. It was scorching hot and dry, like just dust dry. 
So I basically walked into the hotel, all casual, like, doesn't matter how much it costs, whatever it is, I'm only staying one night, just pay for it. It's just one off. I'm here by myself. I'm just going to catch the next flight out of here. I already had my flight booked and I'm going straight back. So (laughs) I went into the hotel room and I remembered something. (laughs) I remembered that I had a tab of acid in my bag left over from Berlin. And I'd completely forgot about this, right? I completely forgot about this because I bought four tabs and I ate three in Berlin. And it was never my intention to take acid on this trip at all. I, I, I was sure I was done with drugs considering all that I'd been through. And I thought, well, I'm in a hotel room by myself for a day so I can either sit and meditate, which is what I probably would have done, or I can take this last tab of acid. <laughs> so I spent my day in Dubai actually doing both. <laughs> it was actually both what I did. Typical. But I took the tab of acid, sat down on the bed with the blindfolds on, and meditated through the entire trip. So it was a complete internal exploration. And I found out later that the penalty for holding drugs in Dubai, coming across the border in Dubai, is death, right? They have the death penalty for drugs. So, very much not recommended. (laughs) And it's not like... It's not like Australia where you have, okay, you've got different classes of drugs and, you know, maybe you could argue that one single tab of acid is not as bad as some other hard drugs because you've also got intent to supply and not intent to supply or personal use and these sorts of nuances like this, like you do in Australia and some other countries. And if you have a really good lawyer, then you can work around it. Well, actually, this is Dubai. This is one of the most staunch countries there is. So they have the death penalty. And you don't know if you can rely on legal nuances to get you off. So (laughs) very much not recommended to traffic drugs into a foreign country because you can end up in some serious trouble. It's definitely something I won't be doing again ever. So, as for the trip itself, I remember really clearly learning what it meant to have someone inside you. Because it was just me in a room, right? It was just me sitting there and meditating and noticing that a person that I'd met and spoken to occupied a kind of part in my memory. And another thing that I had realized, or the real deepest insight, or one of the deepest insights that came from this trip, was that I really didn't need drugs anymore. It was really clear to me, because it was like, well, okay, you've experimented, and then you've found those states without the drugs, and now I'm going back to just check again 
and to really see what the comparison is. So that was very important and it was very clear to me that I didn't really need to explore much further, at least while I was studying these things. It's like, you know, you you put certain things off because you've gone far enough on them. You have to sort of channel your energies into the most important things. So that was an important lesson. That was very, (laughs) very sort of revealing. And the downsides or the sort of negative impacts was I was starting to become more serious. There was this this seriousness in me that was starting to really become strong. And it was quite dark. It was quite sort of like this sort of face of mm, uh, that sort of thing, like the frown, right? I don't really I don't really frown much these days, but at that time this sort of darkness was there. And along with that, or sort of as part of that, there was this thing of the imagination and this sort of fantasy world, which was in some ways glorious and elaborate, but starting to become something that was actually encroaching upon me in a negative way. And these were things I had to work with. These were things that I was starting to realize, okay, I have to actually attend to this. I have to actually somehow go into this. So I remember breakfast the next day in that hotel (laughs) and it was so elaborate. It was like a buffet five-star breakfast. I've never seen anything so elaborate and so fancy, right? I've I've never stayed in five five-star hotels before in my life or since. So it was like, you know, cupcakes and pastries and these little things and the most elaborate coffee and these juices and these fruit bars and coconuts and all these things and I was just like, "Oh, it's all a bit much, isn't it?" <laughs> so I had my breakfast. I got on the plane and I made it back to the Osho International Meditation Resort. And then finally, I was able to realize that this is what I need. This is something that is extremely significant, that has real world implications. And I need to go deep. I need to go all the way into this. And of course, of course, The very next week, I did the sannyasin process, and I took sannyas, and that's how I got the name, (laughs) that's how I got the name Dosta. So, I have spoken about it in the past, but basically, Dosta was a name that was chosen by my friend, who had helped me with the process, and... Dosta means, in Romanian, enough. And I thought, well, that suits how I feel. That suits what I want it to signify for me. But it very quickly took a <laughs> a different meaning when I got with this girl, right? 
this girl that I finally got to start being with when I came back from Dubai was this this incredible Japanese girl and she was so cute like just cute overload the just most adorable thing ever I just loved it a bit and she was just well slim Japanese girl Maybe that's my type. <laughs> I don't know. What can I say about the slim Asian women? They're quite amazing, really. And the significance of it is that Dosta in Japanese means what happened. So she was always walking around saying, Dosta, Dosta, like this, like, what happened? What happened? What happened? What happened? <laughs> So, that's the meaning of the name Dosta. And for me, it was so significant. It was like I had found my real name. It was like Andrew Lake had been falsely ascribed to me, or Jono Lake, even that one, right? Whatever name I was using, whatever name I had had, that was not the right name. It was more like, well, no, this is your this is your name of home. This is your name of awakening. This is your name of committing to the life of meditation. So Dosta means a lot more to me than Andrew Lake. And if you ever cross paths with me, then please call me Dosta. And of course, there'll be more things to say about it later on. But <laughs> Dosta means what happened. So now, now we actually have, I realize this, a different meaning to the title, What Happened in India, <laughs> right? It's like a double meaning. So, my name is Dosta, and if you can sense me, then you can, you can know that, right? And the other thing I can say quickly about names is that a lot of the time when you're in a place like the Osho Resort, Names don't always play such a role in the social situation. It's not like you know everyone's name. And there were cases when I would know someone, but I wouldn't know their name. And they would know me, but I wouldn't, they wouldn't know my name. Because it, it just wouldn't come up, right? We can, we can have a conversation. We can relate. We can get along in many ways without even knowing any of that. And you can easily forget someone's name, right? That happens all the time. When you're meeting hundreds of people every single week, then it's like, well, I can't remember everyone. And if you forget someone and then you meet them again, you can just say, oh, sorry, I forgot your name. What was your name? Or I didn't remember your name, but I remember you sort of thing. So some people, <laughs> you could see some people had that syndrome to like a really, really far off extreme, you know, like one guy who was one of the head sort of puppers or facilitators who was always living there, he obviously met basically everyone that came through the door, right? He knew just about everyone. So to fathom that, he must have been meeting like 5,000 people a year, right? 
Now, when you meet that many people, you're not going to remember all their names. <laughs> so, yeah. And I mean, I, I by no means had that sort of level to the people I was meeting. I was still very much in my own little, my own little world in some ways. I mean, it was opening quite significantly already. So, yeah. And, I mean, what else? I mean, the, the other good thing about workers' meditation was I was starting to explore different areas. I got to go into some of the buildings and I got to move into the resort. So I had my own little room, which is right near the auditorium, overlooking the auditorium with this amazing view. And with this girl that I was really starting to get to know quite quickly, we went off into some little areas to explore. Like I remember going out the back and finding this sort of abandoned building and then this little stairwell and then these big sort of pyramids. And it's like, wow, this resort is bigger than I thought. And there's all these little back alleys and a lot of sort of secret passageways that you can explore. And you're not really supposed to go in some of them and some of them you are and you can't. And it's like, wow, this place is a lot more. It's good to see a different side of it. And there was something else that's escaped me now. Brain fluff is happening. What else did I want to say? Anyway, doesn't matter. So, yeah, that's a little bit about <laughs> what happened in Dubai and the significance of it. And the ultimate lesson was make your decision, right? Before Dubai, I was just sort of fluffing around, do I like this girl or do I not like her? Do I want to be sannyasin or not? You know? It can end. It can stop. It can all stop with a moment's notice. All it takes is one phone call and then that afternoon you are out of here. So stop messing around. Just commit to it. Right? Just just dive in. And in fact there was even a course at the at the resort that was designed for this exact insight. It was called Living with Totality. And I did that course as a part of workers meditation. And <laughs> there's a string of Techniques that you can do that are designed to bring you to this realization, which is, are you in or are you out, right? Just be total about it. Live with totality. Go deep into it. Really put yourself into it. Why are you fluffing around? So, yeah. <laughs> it was, in some ways, a difficult lesson to learn. And it could have... It could have gone really badly, right? It could have actually turned out to be quite a painful loss. I mean, to be kicked out of India for five years, right in the middle of that trip, that would have been a heavy blow. To spend a week in the holding cell in India, I think that would have been quite tricky to deal with, you know? Like a $500 fine, yeah, that's bad, but it could have been a lot worse. And then to consider what I was risking with 
<laughs> bringing LSD into Dubai. That is like, you know, it, it points at the sort of thrill-seeking on edge, just on a whim sort of space that I was in, right? It was just like, throw yourself in. And that was another lesson to learn or another thing to sort of balance, right? Because you can, you can interpret this thing of like throw yourself in in a way that's ungrounded, in a way that's actually quite self-destructive. So yeah, there's a lot of lessons that sort of all come together all at once. And I still had my seriousness brooding. I still had my sort of dark shadow over me. And what best probably summed that up was this poem that I wrote when I was on acid in Dubai. So I'll tell you this poem now. I've probably told it to you before, but I'll tell it again. And this poem was sort of written about what it means to look into someone and to realize that when you're connecting with someone deeply and you're having that eye contact, you're actually losing a part of yourself. You're actually dying. Your ego is being dissolved piece by piece and the false you is being shredded away. So this was the poem that I came up with to help sort of illustrate that or as, a, as an expression of that sort of space that I was in. This face has worn a thousand masks. The first one broke when I looked into your eyes. When I look into your eyes, I could die a thousand times. And that's all I have to say for now.